Are you ready to invest in yourself today? Welcome to the Wealth Builders Podcast, where investment leader Billy Epperhart teaches you how to build wealth through applied biblical wisdom. Scripture says in Deuteronomy 8.18, Remember the Lord, your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. At Wealth Builders, our goal is to teach you how to build wealth through applied biblical wisdom in your finances, your business, and your investments. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today on the Wealth Builders Podcast. We're so grateful that you tuned in, and we're so excited to have all of you as part of the Wealth Builders family. It's a, such a special group, and Billy really feels that he calls it a tribe, and Becky loves the idea of a tribe and a family And we're just so glad that you have tuned in and that you are part of this growing family on how to make sense of making money for making a difference. I'm going to be talking about real estate today and going over some of the questions that we had at the sessions. Uh, Many of these we didn't get to. We had so many questions that we just couldn't answer all of them. And so those of you that attended the workshop We just let you know that you're going to be able to tune in and get the answers to it. But these are some of our most popular podcasts because they're practical things that people are coming up against or thinking about as they hear Billy and Becky training on real estate. So I'm just going to dive right in here and get to the viewer and the attendee questions. So number one. A question came in, do you have inspections done when buying a property using creative financing? One of the sessions that we recorded is on creative financing because sometimes we don't all fit in this perfect bucket of Fannie and Freddie. And so there's different ways that you can finance properties. And in that, because they are maybe out of the box or different than what most of us think about, the question came in, do we handle other things differently like inspections? So our answer to this is when, yes, you wanna have inspections done, no matter how you do the financing, unless you know the property really well, unless you uh, maybe have a new build, but even then everybody does expect that you get an inspection. There's several things that an inspection helps you with that helps you to uncover or uh, avoid really high expenses. It also will help you in the negotiating process. So let me give you a couple examples of that. Mike Davis shares when he had a property that he was going under contract on and he had asked Billy this question, do I need an inspection? And Billy's like, yes, get an inspection. And in that process, uh, he discovered that the roof was damaged. We had a similar situation with a property that we purchased down in McGregor, which we have since sold. That was a flip that we just did. But you can't always tell from looking at it without an expert eye that there's issues with the roof. And in that process, he got a new roof because he negotiated that and knowing that the insurance company would cover it. And we did something similar where we actually came back and we came with a 50-50 back to the seller based on that inspection. And we got a brand new roof for just $4,000. Another area where that inspection is so important is Billy always recommends that you do a sewer scope. 
And this is very important with properties that have been around for a while in the 50s, 60s, 70s, any property really, because they're oftentimes uh, made with cast iron pipes. And you don't have to be afraid of cast iron pipes, but if there is some corrosion in those pipes, it can cause issues. And you maybe have heard about a friend, a family member, where they had sewage backing up into their basement. Well, that's because they didn't do a sewer scope, or maybe it was something where trees started to grow into that pipe. So that is part of the inspection process that's really important. And also for insurance purposes, you know, oftentimes we're finding in Florida that we cannot get insurance without in that inspection because they want to make sure that the electrical meets a certain standard. There's uh, an inspection that covers the ability to handle wind. And so ins insurance companies are going to require some information from those inspections. But bottom line is when you get the inspections, you understand what it is you're getting and it brings you back to the negotiating table at a, you know, at a point that you've got knowledge. And so you've got something to stand on. And it really, really helps mitigate unexpected issues. So no matter how you're financing a property, you want to get an inspection. We could probably do a whole podcast on inspections, but just for time, we'll move on to the next one. All right, next question. When it is said that cash flow on a rental should be $300 per door. What does that mean? What does $300 per door mean? This is a great question because sometimes we're so used to the lingo or the language that we use in real estate that we don't take a moment to explain this in detail. While we've got several metrics that we recommend for you, the $300 cash flow per door being one of those is a non-negotiable in most cases. What this is referring to is when you've got a single family rental, we look at median income, we look at, we try to get the one to one and a half though of lower interest rates, we, we don't always have to do that. There are several parameters, cash on cash, but the $300 references the single family unit. If you have gone through all the criteria that we recommend, that's what you look at is at minimum, you should be receiving no matter what purchase you make, $300 cash flow per that single family unit door. And that is net. So that's after you take out the principal and interest, your taxes, insurance, sometimes it's reserves, HOA in some of those cases. But that $300 is for a single family unit. Now, if you start to look at multifamily, uh, we, we have a scale down per door as you have a larger multifamily unit. For example, if you're buying a duplex, we recommend that you get $250 cash flow per door minimum. And a fourplex, it goes down from there. We've got a whole schedule on it. But this is one of the things that will keep you safe. If we do get to a point where we see the values drop, they, we believe based on historical data, they will certainly go back up. But when you've got that cash flow, that's going to make your payment. It's going to keep you in a position to be able to weather any changes in the market. All right, here's a good question. When looking at median income, are we looking at families, household, or non-families? 
This is one of the criteria that we have you look at when you're looking at purchasing a property. And uh, we recommend that you stay within three to four times the median income in the area. And uh, that is because we want you to be in a position where you are able to rent to, or if you wanna sell a property, to probably the biggest group of people. If you get too high all at once, your audience or your customer potential for rentals or purchasing a property narrows significantly. But there's a lot of different metrics for this. So here's how you look it up. First of all, to answer this question specifically, you wanna look at household income. And median is a very specific metric that Billy shares. So what you can do is you can go in on the search engine, whether it's Google, DuckDuckGo, whatever you use, and put in the uh, search area, median household income 2022, and then put the city in. So I'm sitting here in South Lake, Texas. So I would put in the search engine, median income 2022 South Lake, Texas. The reason I'm specifying the year is that if you don't specify that, you'll get the previous year's data. So again, we're looking at household median income, and the metric is if you can stay three to four times that median income on the purchase price. All right, this question is from Jack, who was one of the attendees at the conference, and he said, you may speak on this, but do you su suggest an LLC on each property? One of our coaches is Bill Bronchek, who's phenomenal. He's been a guest on the podcast, and he is in our various workshops. Uh, he's an attorney and um, just so knowledgeable. He's a real estate investor himself. And what he generally recommends is that you don't do an LLC for each property, but you do maybe like properties in an LLC and maybe stay within two to three, maybe four in each LLC. So he would explain much more about this from a legal standpoint. But when you look at this just from a book standpoint or accounting perspective, for each LLC that you have, you have a series of filings, including a tax return on that LLC. So if you cluster properties into like properties under an LLC or do something called a series LLC, it's going to accomplish the protection that you want with an LLC, but you won't be filing if you own 20 properties, 20 tax returns, right? So that was a great question. This is another one that came in, and this is on a similar topic. Do you set up an LLC or family trust before you purchase your first property? Well, ideally, yes, but here's a caveat to that. Get it set up. Um, one of the things we do that comes as part of the coaching program is that you have a consultation with Bill Bronchek that advises you on all this based on your, your uh, individual criteria with you and your family. But you get it set up so you kind of know where that property is going to land. But in most cases, you're not going to be able to finance in the name of an LLC that you're just starting. So I'm sure there's exceptions to that, but just be aware that in most cases, most all cases, while you get this set up before you purchase the property, you're likely going to have to purchase that property, finance it, and put it into title according to how you finance it in your personal names. And then something we talk about doing is you quick claim it then to your LLC, and that gives you the legal protection 
for that. And uh, it allows you to kind of follow the guidelines that lenders want to see with the financing. Here's a great question. Do I have to have the real estate professional designation to take the 27 and a half year depreciation? One of the sessions that we talked about in the real estate workshop or that you can locate on Wealth Builders University, which is wbuniversity.online, is tax saving strategies. Real estate is a phenomenal, uh, not only wealth engine, a way to grow and create wealth, but it has significant tax advantages. And one of the things that we talked about in this session that I think it was Frank Coley that taught on this is that you can depreciate the property based on if it's a single family dwelling, 27 and a half years. You do not need your real estate professional designation to take advantage of the 27 and a half year depreciation. However, and we go into much more detail on what this designation is, however, getting that designation allows you to go beyond just the cap of the standard $25,000 loss on a real estate. So there's a lot of advantages to the real estate designation. There are guidelines that you must follow with it. And if you do get that real estate designation, you'd work with your CPA on that then you would be able to uh, write off a significantly higher amount on your taxes in real estate losses uh, each year. And also it would help to mitigate your tax liability when you do flips. All right, here's a question. Can homeowner associations change bylaws regarding renters? You bet they can. This is one of those areas where the HOAs have got a lot of power in decision, decision-making powers on how you would manage uh, your property. They have a lot to say about and they have a lot of control over it. So here's what can happen. I'm going to give you a scenario with a risk and I'm going to give you a real life situation and then give you an encouragement on how to handle this as well. Um, a lot of homeowner associations will limit the number of rentals in the area, like they might have like the neighborhood we live in, uh, the neighborhood itself, the HOA can't have more than a certain percentage or a certain number of rented out units, which if you live in a neighborhood is really kind of nice because you've got a home ownership consistently, um, which lessens the risk of somebody not taking care of a property, which of course could affect the value of your home. However, there is a lot of HOAs where they are very strict, as well as cities with the licensing and so forth, very strict on vacation rentals and short-term rentals. So I have an example of one of my really good friends, and she was a real estate client as well, uh, really wanted to purchase a home in Woodland Park and just wanted to bless students and have people live there uh, during the school year, rent out the rooms. And when we purchased the property, the HOA, there was a path that that worked. You had to stay within certain guidelines, but the property, we purchased it based on the current HOA guidelines. And after she purchased the property, the HOA went back in and changed the guidelines which made it impossible for her to be able to rent out rooms to students. So one of the things that going into it that 
could have been a red flag or something that that we could have paid more attention to, though we didn't really dream that they would be so drastic and so pointed. It's kind of a long story what she went through with this. But there's usually sort of an attitude with an HOA that you can learn about. There are some HOAs that are very resistant to rental properties, very resistant certainly to vacation rental properties. And you can pick up on that when you purchase the property. So a lot of times, if you're interested in going into vacation rentals, one of the ideal ways for you to be able to do that in a community, if they allow it, is to buy a property that is not part of an HOA, or at the least, just get an idea of sort of the culture of the HOA or the attitude of the HOA towards rentals and towards vacation properties before making a purchase. Here's a question on rental vetting. Again, this is one of the sessions that we cover to help people if you want to be your own property manager, which we actually kind of recommend for your first couple of properties if you're living near the vicinity. But we talked about some uh, different software uh, places or, or sort of, I guess you would say websites that help you to vet renters. And in that, we talked about how when you use these, you can enter their information and you can get their credit history. You can find out about any past evictions. You can find out a lot of personal information. And so one of the people that were in the conference asked this, like, why isn't getting my personal job income financial illegal without my consent? And I brought this question up because the question was, can I just go to a free app and get info on people? And so to bring clarity to this is no, you cannot. You can get some information. If you've Googled people, you can see you can actually get some information. But what we're talking about here is you would actually get an application, which they would give you the consent to do an inquiry, which you absolutely want to do before you rent a house to anybody. And so this isn't something that you as a, landlord can just go in and find information out about people without their consent. So that'll bring some peace to people. But just know that there's also the correct application process and the correct consent information where you're able to get their okay on it. And then you hook up to one of the um, websites that we recommend that you can vet that tenant and that will just give you a real edge to go in and make sure that you are renting to somebody that has the ability to pay and does not have a rental history that would cause you to not want to rent to that person. And here's a question on property management. How much should I expect to pay a property manager? Should it be a flat fee or a percentage in how much? And this can vary by market, and it certainly varies by type of rental property. So on our properties that we've got in Texas, we pay 8%, which is quite standard. Kind of 8 to 10% is a standard amount. And with that, they vent the tenants. They do the walkthroughs. Um, we do a significant teaching on property managers and how to look for a property manager, but that's kind of an average cost that you want to look at with a property manager. Now, if you go into vacation rentals, that's a whole different story. 
In some markets, vacation rentals can charge between 40 and 60%, which is significant. And so we, we're getting into the vacation rental market. And one of the things as we were looking at this, all of our buying holds, which are the long-term leases, we have a property manager to manage that. The 8% is well worth it. They handle all the tax reporting, all the vetting. If there's an eviction, they handle that, which we don't ever want to run into. But, you know, so things happen when you're in real estate. But the vacation rental, giving up 40 to 60% of that income has really motivated us to manage our own vacation rentals. Now, there's a lot of things you need to think about. You have to figure out how to get them in and out. You have to find a good cleaner. If you don't live in the area, you still need to have a connection of someone that can keep an eye on it. So I'm not saying that it works for everybody. In some cases, maybe that 40 to 60% is worth it. But for a vacation rental, if you can take on that property management, just think about that's money that you can put in your pocket through a little bit of work. So this has uh, just been so fun to go through these questions. And I just want to thank all of you for your great questions. And those of you that attended the workshop, we're just so appreciative of your engagement. It was really an amazing, amazing conference. Now, if you weren't able to attend or maybe you didn't know about it, I just want to remind you that the USB is available where you get all 20 plus sessions, all the Q&A sessions and all of the speaker and the coaches PowerPoints, which are loaded. You know, Billy had over like a hundred charts updated before this conference. And so just to give you some insight, it's very technical information and it's well worth the investment. You can go to wealthbuilders.org and you can click on the shop to locate that. Also, we've got Wealth Builders University at wbuniversity.online. Uh, which is an amazing learning platform that Billy and Becky launched just to help people to gain an understanding in this area. And that's just $299 a year. And you also get to be part of a mastermind on a monthly basis where we do a live teaching from a speaker or coach where you can ask questions. So again, I want to thank you so much for joining us today on the Wealth Builders podcast. We love and appreciate you. God bless you and have an amazing rest of the day. We hope you learned something of lasting value today from this Wealth Builders podcast. If you'd like any tools, teachings, or resources mentioned in the podcast, you'll find them online at wealthbuilders.org. Wealth Builders exist to teach you how to build wealth through applied biblical wisdom in your finances, your business, and your investments. Wealth Builders is a nonprofit organization. We depend on your donations to keep this podcast running. Please consider donating to us on wealthbuilders.org.